Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate to the Provost for Faculty at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. At the Teaching and Learning Center, we're starting a new series of podcasts called TLC Spotlights, in which we feature one or several faculty and staff members who have expertise in a certain area of benefit to the John Jay teaching community. In today's Spotlight podcast, I interviewed Gina Foster, Director of the Teaching and Learning Center since 2016. Dr. Foster holds a number of advanced degrees, as you'll hear in my interview, and has training and work experience in trauma and resiliency. In this interview, I ask her about her background and how it led to her her work in teaching and learning, as well as the work of trauma victims from around the world. Through much of the discussion, I return to this question. How can understanding trauma and resilience make us better teachers at John Jay? So you have an MFA in creative writing, an MA in religion, a PhD in philosophy, art, and critical thought, and you are certified in international trauma studies. What is the through line in these studies as you understand it, and how has that led you to your current career directing teaching and learning centers? You know, that's a great question, and there's not a single answer because for graduate degrees, you tend to think someone can't make up her mind, but there are threads, and there are threads. In philosophy, my focus is on ontological ethics and aesthetics. And if you focus on ontological, it's about being and becoming. What does it mean to be and become? And to understand being and becoming requires not simply self-reflection and study of how others have approached those words and those themes, but also the enactment and the manifestation and the sharing of these things. And in my life... Service and education have been very important in my family and the culture I came from. And in my life, being a creative person and being a thoughtful person, as well as being someone devoted to exploring what justice means and how to correct the wounds that justice and injustice invariably commit, these things have all been incredibly important to me, and they've intersected. And if you read my poetry, you will see a great deal of wounding and healing in conversation. And the same in terms of the topics I've chosen in philosophy. And the approach I choose in education is one of holistic, responsive teaching. And it's invariably with students who are not privileged in the sense that we think of privileged They are struggling with economic oppression, with racist oppression, with gender oppressions, with sexual assault oppressions, and they're struggling with their own mental health issues. And all of those come together in communities that respond well to an ontological ethics and an ontological aesthetics and communities that create these things. I want to talk about trauma and use your expertise in trauma 
to help us think through how we can be helping students learn at John Jay. Um, your work in trauma studies led you to understand CUNY students' needs, and I say CUNY because you've also been at Lehman in addition to John Jay. Um, CUNY students' needs um, differently than some of the standard approaches to teaching and learning. As someone who understands trauma, what do you see in our students, and how did that shape your approach to teaching and learning? Yes, again, great question. And frame, let's frame this with the understanding that I'm not a native New Yorker or an East Coaster, that I spent most of my childhood in Southern California, and that I worked with different communities who are responding to traumatic events and shared experiences such as domestic violence survivors, sexual assault survivors, uh, refugees, children in at-risk neighborhoods and halfway houses. And I bring these kinds of experiences as well as my own experiences of trauma to all the education I do. And I have for the last, say, 25 years. So arriving at CUNY in 2007, I already had a mindset that the students were likely to be experiencing traumas in their lives just by the nature of being in college, in public urban environments, by the nature of being in diverse groups that weren't being, I don't know, overly funded, overly privileged, overly blessed and protected, that these students were going to be needing what I would think of as holistic responses to trauma. And can you help unpack that a little bit for me? You know, for those of us who aren't experts in trauma, um, can you explain what it is, what it looks like, mm -hmm. and some of the things that we might need to be aware of to change the way we approach our mm -hmm. classes? So I think it's important to understand that when I say trauma, I don't mean something that is limiting someone by nature of their identity. I mean something that is limiting how one develops. And it's not a choice on the part of that person. These are circumstantial activities, effects, influences that actually prevent someone from becoming the most they can be at that particular moment. So when I'm looking at trauma, I'm thinking of something that disrupts our identity. It disrupts the consistency of who we are. It's that wound that either never heals or is extremely difficult to heal without outside interventions. And it moves us off course, knocks us off course, and it's not a simple bruise. It's not a simple interruption to how we're learning or saying, I can't do this, it's too hard. It's, I don't know how to face this given who I am because who I was yesterday is not who I am today. In thinking about our students, you know, I think I'm confused maybe mm -hmm. about the difference between 
overly stressed students, mm -hmm. and I would say there probably isn't a John Jay student mm -hmm. who isn't under immense stresses, mm -hmm. right, environmental, structural, et cetera, mm -hmm. versus trauma. Do you make a distinction here? I make a distinction between a person who is traumatized and needs external assistance to recover and someone who is experiencing normal stressors that kick us off base from time to time, but we can recover. Mm -hmm. But what we really want to think about with our students here is not so much what individually each is experiencing and well, whether or not that's severe trauma or something that's ordinary and can be pulled back in without much of our help. We want to think about learning, how learning is traumatic. Learning is disruptive to our sense of who we are. And if learning is happening in an environment and a set of circumstances that probably include multiple traumas, and we've just listed them, our John Jay students are working full-time and going to school. They are often raising families on their own. They are dealing with racism, many of them. They are dealing with sexism. They are dealing with gender oppression. And we can go on and on and on, mental health issues. But think about learning in that context. Learning from day to day is asking us to become someone we weren't the day before. Mm -hmm. And depending on how much learning we're asking them to do and how far it is from who they were and understood themselves to be the day before, we're asking them perhaps to be more resilient than they may be. Right. Now, in, in some of the things that you've written, you've talked about a difference, right? Now, mm -hmm. you're talking about our students in a way that feels very familiar to me, but I think there are dif there's a, a difference in the perception, mm -hmm. right? There are those who have the outlook that these are our students, but somehow with that comes a sense, and therefore they can't achieve X, mm -hmm. right? But you have... Um, a mindset that you call capacities in development, mm -hmm. right? So can you explain what that what the distinction that you are making there is between those who can see, you know, students can't do this versus we have capacities in development, and how we can begin to start to shift our mindset so that we understand our teaching as developing capacities. Capacity is one of my favorite concepts. For me, capacity is not fixed. Capacity indicates a certain set of limitations mm -hmm. that we live in at any given moment. And as we develop ourselves, our skills, our knowledge, our experiences, we reach the limits of those capacities. Now, if we really reach the limits of those capacities, those capacities break, they burst, and we are in a new set of capacities. And to me, that is what learning is all about. Think of it as bubbles. You can talk to your students about capacity and learning as a bubble. Right now, the limits of what you can do based on what you currently know and have done and have demonstrated are probably about here. But uh, if we keep developing those to the best we can, you're going to break through that and you'll be in the next step. So this is the development of critical thinking. This is the development of deep knowledge. This is the development of working memory. And when you are doing it right, I imagine, you um, create some resistance from students, right? I'm hearing mm -hmm. this. I'm thinking most of us don't want to change. We're inherently mm -hmm. conservative beings, right? Mm -hmm. You come to school 
theoretically to change, mm -hmm. but once someone starts actually forcing you to do so, it can be very painful and threatening. How do you deal with resistance? So instead of forcing my students to do things, <laughs> right? You thought I would not pick up on that word. I never <laughs> do, of course. But we, you know, we can be perhaps overly eager or assertive, shall we say. Okay. But we're challenging our students. We're motivating them. This is where motivation is so important. We are believing in them and modeling for them and mirroring for them that we believe they can do it. And they may not be able to burst a single set of capacities or multiple ones in our class, but they'll get closer. And then in the next class, they get there. But if we think, well, they, if they can't do it now, they're never going to do it, they give up on themselves already. So we have to be mirroring to them that we think they can do it. We have to be realistic about where they're starting so that we can help them move step by step into expanding their capacities. You know, we really have to do that, which means we have to be very present and very aware that it's not easy, that it doesn't happen in isolation, that each student will do it at their own pace, and yet there are certain consistencies, there are certain things we can do that have very high rates of success. And when students start to feel that they are expanding capacity, they are far more likely to keep doing it. It's so exciting to be able to do something you couldn't do the day before or two weeks before. But uh, getting there is tough. We become guides then. We become the cheerleaders, the mentors, all of these things. And we also become the realistic reflectors. Here's where you are. Let's stop. You just fell down. Okay, take five minutes and feel bad. Now get up and try again. In helping our faculty understand how knowing about mm -hmm. trauma and resiliency can make you a better teacher, um, you have published uh, some of your research on this, and you have organized it around two models, mm -hmm. the STAR model and resiliency principles. Uh, this is going to be a lot for our listeners to absorb, so I want to take each concept separately and ask you to sort of walk us through how each of these ideas mm -hmm. can shape our approach to teaching. So the STAR model, can you tell us what it is and how can it help shape individual faculty members' approach to how they teach? So the STAR model is really a way of helping students and your mentees master some of the basic life skills they need to get through their education and to get through their early professional lives. Time management, for example, comes up frequently. And many of us are not good ourselves at time management, but helping our students understand the time that's needed for each activity that's on the syllabus so they can anticipate and plan ahead, asking them to think about different kinds of time, right? There's fixed time and there's more fluid time. There's time that cannot be replaced. You must do this every day at such and such a time. And there's time that's more fluid. Well, I could sleep a little less or a little more. I can move my meal times around. Okay. Uh, class time is fixed. 
And you start helping students understand that time is not an enemy and that time can actually not just be measured, time can be categorized, time can be compartmentalized. And the whole STAR model is about compartmentalizing and attaching these different skills and concepts to actual activities. So we have goals, time, processes, communication, and resources. How many of our students know how to identify the resources they need for a given task and to use them appropriately? How many of our students are we encouraging to identify gaps in resources that they need and create them, find them, making it work? Again, we're not working with students who are in privileged environments because John Jay is not a privileged environment for the most part. So where do we find what we need? How do we make it work? What do we do that's creative to problem solve? There are different kinds of communication. How do you email your professor? What kind of language do you use? What kind of language do you use in discussion in the classroom with your peers? What's the language we use in a formal presentation or paper? These are all different. Emails, phone calls, chats, emojis, right? These are all different. And when are they appropriate and when are they not appropriate? Processes, what is a process? Are you looking at a process that's circular or linear? Are you looking at a process that takes a great deal of time or takes very little time and you start to combine things? Are you looking at processes that require higher level orders of thinking, are physical, are emotional, are thought experiments? What is it that needs to happen for this project? If you're doing a project that requires scaffolding and teamwork, well, you can ask your students to look at the different steps of the project the different people who will be involved, the kinds of work that take place at each part, how much time is involved, what resources they need, and then goals. How do we set priorities? How do we measure where we are in achieving our goals? How do we go back and revise our goals? And how do we know when we're done and we set new goals? And yes, faculty, this is assessment and closing the loop, and it's painful for many of us, so have some empathy. But this is really what we want our students to learn. And we're going to start with a project at any point, probably, where one of these is fixed. So if the amount of time is fixed, we start with time, and then we move to what are the goals for that time. If we have resources, what do these resources allow us to do? Well, then the resources connect to processes, connect to goals time and communication. It's really fun for students. They pick this up very fast. They tend to pick this up faster than faculty <laughs> because faculty tend to think this fairly simplistic. And it is, but that's the point because it's giving your students a way to categorize and tag what they're doing. And if you do this with your syllabus in the first week of class and have your students tag it, you'll be amazed at how compliance leaps. Interesting. And I just want to point out uh, for listeners that um, if you look up uh, Dr. Foster's article, you will see that this is a, a uh, physical model, a five-pointed star. And at each point of the star, you have goals, time, communication, processes, and resources. Right? Makes sense. 
resiliency principles. Can you explain what those are? And I, resiliency strikes me as a term mm -hmm. very closely connected to trauma, so maybe mm -hmm. you want to explain the link there mm -hmm. and then explain what the resiliency principles are. Right. So trauma and resiliency are often linked, particularly in that uh, field of study. And resiliency or resilience, and you'll see it both ways, is usually defined as the state of being able to recover one's original state. If you press into a rubber ball, it will come back to a smooth surface. It will recover its original state, right? Very resilient. Water in its fluid state is resilient. Water in its frozen state is not and water in its vaporous state, well, it's very hard to measure whether it's coming back or not, right? How do you disrupt that? But resiliency is that ability to recover who you were before. And that's what's so important about working with anyone in the world right now as an individual and any community or large group identifying as a large group, because how do you live in this world and not be traumatized? Right? How, do, how does that happen? So how do we help ourselves recover? Now, the research on complex PTSD and PTSD survivors tells us that we begin with stability and that we can't really begin healing work unless the person feels safe and feels stable. And stability is also interpreted to be consistency of identity, which I've referred to before. It's that sense that I'm the same person today that I was yesterday and that I'll be that person tomorrow. It's not a sense that I'm exactly the same. It's the sense that I'm Gina today. I was Gina yesterday. I'll be Gina tomorrow. And even if something terrible happens and my sense of safety in the world is disrupted, I still know that I am that Gina, mm -hmm. right? So once we have stability, we feel safe enough to start facing what it was that hurt us, what it was that changed us, and that's where we hit capacity because our capacities need to be redeveloped. Mm. We lose capacity when we're traumatized. We go into survival mode. And in survival mode, we draw back into the most essential parts of our identities. And this is true of large groups as well. So we need to then develop capacities again for communicating, for thinking, for being in the world, and for being effective in the world. When we develop capacity, which we've talked about to some extent, then we have to think about whether or not we can adapt to all the other people in the world in situations that are developing their capacities, right, that are attempting to be resilient or not. And that's where flexibility comes in. And we need to be able to adapt to changes in circumstances, expected and unexpected. We need to learn not to be too flexible, hypermobile, because if we're hypermobile, then we don't get anything done, <laughs> right? We can't stand up on our own two feet or from whatever place of stability we have. Mm -hmm. And if we're not flexible enough, we end up breaking. Once we're able to go through those three levels of resiliency, development, 
so stability, capacity, and flexibility, then we can be productive members of a community. And in a community, we share goals, time, resources, processes, and communication, one or any combination of those that bring us together. And we need to be able to be flexible, adapt. We need to be able to contribute to the capacity development of the community and others, as well as having that be part of our own development. And we need to be able to help keep that community stable. But if we don't have those connections with community, right, then again, we become isolated and our sense of self becomes usually fairly stratified. And that's not helpful. And I'm kind of pushing this to say classrooms and online classrooms are communities and we are in community with our students. We need to understand that community is something we can support and develop to the extent that we are willing to engage that so that our students can be resilient and can learn better because they are learning in community whether or not we're addressing that. I think I need you to explain this more um, because I think when when I hear a lot of people talk about building a community in the classroom, mm-hmm. they're talking at a, at a on a different plane, right? About like, well, let's break the ice, let's put people in groups and then have them come back and report out to people. What are you talking about when you're okay. talking about this? So the resiliency principles and uh, the notion yeah. that you, right. know, you have these individuals and then you're mm-hmm. building a community from it. Breaking the ice is a term that just bothers me and has just (laughs) it's just gets me for decades you know tell me why because it's a violent metaphor it's not a community metaphor it's not about connecting it's not about learning together doing together learning from each other challenging each other it's breaking it's breaking ice well people are not ice and relationships are not ice they just they so just how aren't. Should it be done? So how should it be done? Because I'm not at all passionate about this, mm. right? But we need to see our students as people. My father used to remind me when he was practicing medicine that the first rule of medicine, when in doubt, look at the patient. And I want to tell all the faculty everywhere people who are educating or interested in mentoring, when in doubt, look at your student. Who is standing in front of you, right? And then look at your classroom and get them to talk to each other. How many of your students know each other's names and how often do you ask them to do that? If you're at the point where you make yourself memorize their names, Have you reached the point of challenging them to know each other, to speak to each other by name? Do you know what that does? What does it do? Students came to me years after taking a Comp 2 class in Oregon to tell me it was their favorite class and it was the only class where they felt recognized and where they felt comfortable and that they were seen and supported and could do the work. I see. Okay, so what you're saying is that it's not just the instructor, but when the community is recognizing you, 
It's giving you the conditions of stability so that you can develop capacity. Yes, 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 yes. And okay. I, I, th that was not a preformed performative. I am just clicking right now. Now you're clicking. And remember, it's not all about you as the <laughs> instructor. Oh, stop. <laughs> right? And, you know, I like to perform. And so I would want it to be about me sometimes, but it's not. It's about the community. And it's also not all about the students. It's all about us together. In the classroom, we are sharing time. In the classroom, we are sharing learning objectives, goals. We are sharing processes. We are sharing communication. And we are definitely sharing resources. Now, if we're sharing all of those things and we're going to manage them effectively, we need to recognize each other and find ways to practice working with each of those singly and together, so that the capacity that we're developing really hits those learning objectives, really hits the departmental objectives for students in these courses, and also, most of all, supports the student's sense that they're learning. about how you can help make a student aware of their learning, right? I do think that that has mm -hmm. to be the key part, right? But um, supporting the student's sense mm -hmm. of their learning is mm -hmm. different, I think, mm -hmm. than helping students to become metacognitively mm -hmm. aware. Mm -hmm. I am learning. So how do we help students understand that they're learning or sense that they're learning? One thing we do is ask them, what are you learning? Another thing we do is get specific. We covered this concept today. We were talking about, let's say, sonnets, since I'm a poet, right? And I was talking about masculine and feminine endings. Can you show me some? That's great. Can you explain to me why those are masculine and feminine enemies? Wonderful. Can you tell that to the class? Okay. So, do you feel you understand this? Can you do that on an exam? Can you do this in a paper? No. It is not something that you can say, I definitively know that student is learning because I've measured it, but I've quantitatively measured it, and I've gotten the student's mind that they're learning something. Right. Okay, I want to go back to resiliency principles, and I want to make sure I'm understanding their application. Yeah, yeah. Right? So on the one hand, it is about uh, establishing, I think, mm -hmm. a classroom community. What else is it about? So let's talk about something that is affecting our whole community, and it's a trauma that's affecting our community. We're dealing with the loss of one of our students, and we don't, on the whole, know much about what took place or why. And we know that these are incidents that happen. Many of us have lost friends and family to these kinds of decisions and these kind of actions. But we are here together sharing these sense senses of loss and grief and in sometimes anger 
and sometimes frustration, anxiety. There's so many emotions that come up. And what do we do with that? And how do we face our students on the first day of classes knowing many of them are also feeling these things? Well, we let people know that we have a counseling center. We give them information about resources. But we also think about what happens in resiliency and what's the first level of resiliency as I understand it. It's stability. So we provide safe spaces. We provide consistent spaces. We provide meaningful work that the students can see is actually speaking to a learning objective, right? We don't have to talk directly about what happened unless we feel with our students that's appropriate. But we can be respectful of what our students are feeling and give them practical things to do, meaningful things to do. And we can also remember this concept of the class as community. And at times like this, we mourn together. So we come together in community. So again, having your students recognize each other by name and know something about each other supports us. When I was in college, and especially toward the end of college, I had very strong emotions, as did most of my peers, and I didn't have places to put them. There were people to talk to occasionally, but I didn't have a history or a track record of having gotten through very difficult things and knowing I could do it again. I'd gone through some things, and they were tough, but I hadn't kind of learned to trust myself as an adult outside of my family or as an adult member of the family in getting through the hard things, surviving them, even if it took time. It took me much more time and many more experiences before I could face difficult things and think to myself, this is really hard, but I did that, so I know that somewhere in me, I have what it takes to get through this. Well, I'm assuming that our students have some similarities with that and that even if they have gone through very difficult times, and many of them have, that sense of trust in themselves as problem solvers and survivors is perhaps not as strong as it could be. Mm. So what we can do to help them develop that sense of, I can persist, I can solve problems, and I can create community wherever I am to get me through, then we are likely to experience fewer of these losses, and we're likely to recognize students on the way to those losses faster. We talk about grit in more recent research on resilience. And grit is the sort of the quality of what keeps you going. But grit apparently is not something that can be 
changed in terms of how much you have from person to person. It's not like capacity. But it is something that you can maximize. So it's somewhat like IQ. Someone can measure IQ, but the IQ of two people can be 20 points apart, and the person with the lower IQ is outperforming the person with the higher IQ, right? So these things give me hope. And the fact that I'm here at John Jay gives me hope because I found a place where I can use much of my training and who I am to be with the faculty and students and staff here. And I can share that there's a great deal of joy in the journey and there's a great deal of humor and there's so much meaning. And we can't rescue each other, but we can be there for each other and get each other through. And we can't rescue our students, but we can be there for them. We can support them and we can help them get through. And that is something that, at the end of the day, makes for a very good homecoming. And it makes for a very good entry into the next day. And that's continuity and that persists. We've been talking a lot about student success at John Jay this year. And we've been talking about how many of our students drop out. They leave. Despite their coming here, they mm -hmm. want to be here. Mm -hmm. uh, you have suggested that one of the reasons that students may leave is because of a, a mismatch in perception mm -hmm. between faculty and students. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say more about that? Let's go back to uh, some comments you've made about faculty thinking students just can't make it or they don't really belong here. Or this is the you know not the right fit. And it goes back to that idea of where are our students starting when they show up and are we really seeing them there and honoring that? Are we punishing our students with deficit-based thinking saying they don't have these skills, whoever they are, but saying we want to see these skills, we don't see these skills. Uh, we want to see this knowledge, we don't see this knowledge. Or in the first three terms, we're not seeing the transfer of knowledge, they're not sustaining it, right? Are we being punitive? Are we not looking? Are we not seeing? Are we not valuing? And I think that from the beginning, honoring our students, respecting our students, liking them and appreciating them. You know, we have to like people to be in this business. Individual, occasionally, we may not work out so well, but on the whole, they're human beings and they came here. And if they're really not ready to be in this class, interventions are needed and we have interventions. We have people to talk to. But if we have a whole class and they're not where you think they should be to be in the class, then maybe we need to think about the class and maybe we need to think about how we talk to the students about expectations and see how we negotiate that. You know, a syllabus is a legal document, but how you manifest, demonstrate, enact your syllabus, that's negotiable. That's very negotiable. And if you have in your mind what your capacity development is going to be, ideally, and you have in your mind that you're going to check and see where your students are and if you think you can get them there, 
Can you all get there? Can some of you get there? Then you can have more interesting conversations and you're going to lose fewer students. But I'm telling you, knowing your students' names and having them know each other's names, you're going to lose fewer of them because they feel seen and they feel connected. And if they don't feel seen and connected, why should they come back? I'm going to ask you the same question that I've asked each of the distinguished teaching prize winners that I've interviewed. And that is, um, for faculty who want to make a small change to their teaching, what is one small change that you think all of us could do that would help students learn more? Let's go back to what we were just saying. Ask your students to learn each other's names. Uh, do it in a way that really engages them and makes them look at each other. So they're not all looking straight forward. If you're in a classroom, you rearrange the classroom best you can so that they can see each other. And if you're online, there are either photos or some sort of image, some visual that represents the students so that they actually start looking at those and knowing not just by the written name, but by that representation. I would do that before I would do anything pedagogical. Gina Foster, Director of the Teaching and Learning Center at John Jay College. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate to the Provost for Faculty at John Jay College. Welcome to Season 3 of our Distinguished Teaching Series, in which we celebrate the dedication to student-centered, innovative teaching practices of our Distinguished Teaching Prize winners. In today's interview, I talk with Jill Gross-Pfeiffer, Associate Professor of Psychology and the only John Jay faculty member to have won the prize two times. I begin the interview by asking Jill what winning the prize meant to her the first time in 2009 and again this year in 2019. So in 2009, I was a pretty new teacher. Um, I had started at John Jay in 2007. Um, and so I was trying out a lot of new things. Um, I remember actually quite clearly in my application and my putting in my materials uh, where I asked for evidence of innovative teaching, me putting in things, but with these little parenthetical um, 
side quote saying, I'm not sure if this is really innovative, um, but this is what I'm doing. Um, and so I think at that time I was teaching in a learning community. I was teaching a large section of Psych 101 using clickers, which is like an audience response system in order to try and um, get total class participation and to gauge attitudes and also student understanding through the class. Um, so I was trying out these different technologies and different types of pedagogies um, and doing some basic assessment of whether or not things were working. But I, f I felt very new and sort of hesitant. So it was really affirming to me to have that acknowledgement in 2009 that I should continue. So I think then, I, I'm not sure that I felt that I was particularly deserving of the prize. So I felt like I had to live up to it. So I sort of threw myself into... Um, really, I guess, looking at pedagogical methods and thinking about teaching in a much deeper way than I had previously because I felt that that was really required of me. Um, and so since doing that, I feel like I've tried a lot of things since then. Um, and I'm, I've gotten much better at assessment. It still means a, a huge amount to me. I, I, like the, the acknowledgement of my efforts is really important to me. And the fact that I know several students nominated me is really affirming that. And, and I get that from students a lot, that they do validate what I'm doing, that they appreciate what I'm doing. If you were a student in my class, you would know that I survey you a lot of the time to find out about what are your study habits, what works best for you, did this work for you, did this not work for you, why does it, why doesn't it? So I'm always gathering sort of formative assessment from students to try and figure out whether something is working or whether something could be better. Do you survey students only to find out whether things are working? Or is there some element of metacognition involved for them that you want them to mm -hmm. be aware of what you're doing, that you want them to reflect on what learning works for them? Right. So I do, I, I do try and be very transparent about why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them. Um, and so it says in my syllabus, and I say in the first day of class, these are the ways that I'm going to be teaching, and they're really based on evidence that shows this is how students learn best. And then I ask them how they think they would learn best. So it, it is a little bit of both. I would say I ask students especially in the introductory classes, to reflect a lot on their learning um, and the ways that they learn and their study habits. And I don't do that as much in upper-level classes. I'm, I'm asking more, is this working for you? I think perhaps because of the, the nature of the classes are a little bit different as well. So I know the classes that I teach at the 300 level in the undergraduate curriculum are... Uh, traditionally thought of as difficult classes because they are focused on the biological basis of psychology. And so many of our students don't have much of a background in science, and so they struggle sometimes with because they seem like relatively abstract concepts and they haven't necessarily covered them in other classes. So I am always thinking about 
what's what's helping them understand and what's helping them retain the information, what's helping them think deeply about the subject area and how are their skills improving. And in addition to thinking about that, you wrote in some of the materials you submitted that you're interested in helping them with their personal growth. What's interesting to me about that or seemingly challenging is that you very often teach large sections. And so can you tell me how you help students think about or work towards their own personal growth and specifically how you do it at scale? Mm-hmm. So I, I often think that teaching a large class, I, I might revisit this when I'm actually doing grading and stuff, but um, that it's really helpful in many ways because the class can be seem really large when you want to collect data. Like So if you're doing a demonstration in class and you want to replicate a study, if you've got 200 students sitting in front of you and you ask them a, a few questions and we look at the data, well, sometimes we replicate results and sometimes we get the opposite findings of result of published studies, and that's an interesting discussion as well. Um, but I think you can also create small environments within a large classroom by doing small group work um, and just having students even turn to their partners. So I, I mentioned already that I'm using clickers. Mm-hmm. Um, I use them in my medium-sized class too, classes What's, of 36. Size? Well, you're like standard, I guess, at John Jay is 36 right. students. So I use them in those classes too. Um, because I feel, because I've learned that if I ask a question and people raise their hands even after discussing with a neighbor. I hear a few answers. We alight on the correct answer or something that seems like it's reasonable. We talk about why it's correct. But it doesn't necessarily involve... Your perception is, or my perception used to be, that everybody was on the same page. Mm. It seemed like students were on the same page people would be nodding I I would ask does everybody understand do we need to discuss that further and if they said no I would move on Um, but I think when you use clickers you really get a true understanding of what everybody in the room believes about this particular question and even and, and so what I like to do with the clicker questions is have people discuss with their neighbor or the person behind them or in front of them before they click in their answer. But it's still them making the final decision about what their answer is going to be. Mm-hmm. So so going back to the, to the question about personal growth, um, I think you can create these smaller environments within a large classroom quite easily. Um, and students really like that too. Um, So sometimes I have small group assignments where the big class of 200 students are working in groups of four, three or four or five on, I'd say, a critical thinking problem. Like we've covered some materials in class and how are they going to apply that to real life. Mm -hmm. But in that intro class, what I'm what's always in the back of my mind is how is this material, especially as it's a gen ed course, it isn't 
specific to psych majors, um, how is this course going to help you in the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. So, and there's a lot because it's a broad survey course. So we talk about health and we talk about stress and we talk about mental illness and we talk about help-seeking behaviors and we talk about sleep and we talk about study habits and how learning and memory works. So I think all of those are really pertinent to every everybody's life, but particularly college students' lives. And so those are the things that I often ask them to reflect about um, and have assignments around so they are um, encouraged to think metacognitively about the application of psychology to their life, but also how they can use that to improve their lives or the lives of other people around them. But also understanding who you are, right? Um, I think that also comes from a lot of these reflective exercises. Who am I? Who am I as a person? What are my goals? What are my aspirations? Um, I think that's also part of my classes. And and I want students to feel empowered. Um, I want them to believe in themselves. And so I often set challenging work, but with the uh, with the caveat that I say, I know this is going to be challenging, but you can do it, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the tools that you need to be able to succeed in, with this. So, yeah, I think all of those things are important for personal development. You participated in the Teaching and Learning Center seminar on teaching at a Hispanic-serving institution and have been doing some work to follow up on that. Can you share one or two things that you have learned or learned again Mm. in the the seminar um, that you find interesting or that you've applied to your teaching? Yeah, so I think one thing that I have been aware of in the past, but I think this really hit home for me, is how important it is for our students to see themselves reflected in the materials that they're reading um, uh, as scholars, right? So the the scholarly work of um, people from minoritized groups especially has not been well represented, um, certainly in psychology. And so... In the past, when I have taught a a little bit about the history of psychology, I've kind of skimmed over the beginning and focused a lot on people who have made dynamic changes in the field of psychology, who are typically women and people of color, who've kind of changed the face of psychology in terms of the kinds of questions that are being asked. So there's much more of a focus, I think, on social justice as a consequence of, uh, of opening or diversifying the field of psychology. And so I think it, it really underscored that, that that was so important for students who belong to minoritized groups in terms of having strong role models, mm-hmm. right? And as a white woman, yes, I can be a role model for other women, but I'm certainly not going to be a role model for um, people of color because they won't see themselves reflected in me and you know and, and plus I have this funny accent so I'm clearly from another culture 
And so I wanted to make sure that the textbook that I used in my intro class was much more representative um, and also tried to... So the other thing that I came for, that came over very strongly in that seminar was advice from outside speakers talking about decolonizing their curricula. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I've been trying to institute. Um, and it's it was helped by having an open source book so I could delete stuff and add stuff as I wanted. And so, I, you, you know, so there are just some theories that are very ethnocentric in psychology textbooks without acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are some of the things that we sort of focused in on in, in the class to um, question some of those theories. And I, I have to say that so that was the other wonderful thing about having a class of 200 students if you are talking about replicating studies that may be specific to white middle-class men, right, who live in the Midwest, mm-hmm. you don't always replicate the findings. And then that really is great to open up the conversation of, well, why do you think our class data are so different from these? And, we, and it's not because we have a small sample size, right? right? So in a smaller class, that's always a, a, a potential reason for a difference but we uh in 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 the intro class it's clear that the vast percentage of students are from collectivistic society uh, cultures right so Mm -hmm. um whereas most of the data have been collected from people who endorse individualistic um values so that's a huge difference Parenting styles are often very different. Health-seeking behaviors are often very different. So all of those, I think, are really relevant. Um, and I want our students to to know that that's really important, that their, their perspectives are important and being acknowledged in psychology, and that they will have important insights going out into the world as well, that they, you know, from their own cultural perspective, are providing important insights. You describe yourself as a reformed abuser of PowerPoint. (laughs) Um, Can you tell me what that means? And I'm particularly interested in what others who rely on PowerPoint in their classes can learn from you. Okay, so when I was an undergraduate, um, I had many lecture classes in the days before PowerPoint, sometimes somebody might have an overhead projector or um, one of those things that you could write on. I've forgotten what they're called now. Um, but it, it's essentially an overhead projector um, or slides very occasionally. But they weren't, they weren't easy. Um, but, but the, I mean, the, the important thing is that the, uh, the mode of, Education was this passive transmission of information, and we would just write as quickly as we could. So with that model in mind, that's when how I first started teaching was that I thought that I had to lecture and that my what I would be doing better than the people that lectured at me would be to be providing, um, you know, um, 
slides that had pictures that illustrated what I was trying to say or bullet points. Um, yeah, that I was just lecturing better than they were. And I think that was also encouraged or reinforced by advice from other people when I asked them. So I'm teaching this course. How do you teach it? Would you mind sharing your syllabus? And here's a textbook recommendation, and the textbook would come with this bank of slides. And so I assume that's the way you should teach without really questioning it. So, And what I've also learned now is that death by PowerPoint <laughs> is, is a real phenomenon, right? Mm. So it's not... I do use PowerPoint, but I use it in a different way in my classes. So I used to use it way too many slides, way too much stuff on the slides. Um, it was kind of like my notes were up, projected for the students to see effectively. Um, but it's not a good way of for students to... Even if it were, if anyone I was presenting, right? So I teach a teaching of psychology class to doctoral students, and one of the things that we try and institute early in the semester is that teaching is not presenting, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I was definitely presenting. I was trying to be entertaining and presenting, but I was presenting. Um, and so I've come away from that to a, a student-centered way of teaching but also when I use a slide if it's informational to explain something I try and follow Maya's multimedia best practices so there's a a whole body of research on if you're going to use PowerPoint slides what should they look like and it should be a picture uh, because we can't process words on the slide if somebody's talking right Mm. so you can either read Mm -hmm. And the person, the teacher has to be quiet. Or if you're talking, then there shouldn't be words on the slide or there should be very minimal number of words on the slide. So if you're explaining a picture, that's all fine because the students are using a different um, part of their brain to process the picture than they are to process the words that are coming in through their ears. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of advice about how to, if you're going to use multimedia, how to use it, and I wasn't aware of those um, those rules, if you like, at the beginning. So yeah. You create vodcasts to prepare your students for in-class activities. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and how it works? I'm unfamiliar with vodcasts. So vodcasts are a podcast with a visual component, hence the V. (laughs) Um, And so what those often look like are something like PowerPoint slides. In fact, I often do it from a PowerPoint. The PowerPoint slides that may have minimal text. Now I'm using Maya's Multimedia Best Principles. Can Uh, you spell that? M-A-Y-E-R. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe it's Maya, but I always say Maya. Um, so, yeah, so the vodcasts have minimal text, more pictures, 
and I am trying to condense the main points of a reading, often a textbook chapter or a textbook module, in case students don't have time to read the textbook. Um, and also maybe to explain some of the things that I think are difficult to understand, but are really essential if we want to engage in higher order thinking in the class. So I teach this class called, well, it's called perception right now, but it's going to be called sensation and perception. But it is about sensation and perception. It's a 300 level course, and it's mostly about how our senses work. So students have to learn about the biology of the sensory systems, but also how does our brain interpret that information? And so when I took this course as an undergraduate, we had a lab component to it. We had the lectures, but we also had labs. And when I first started teaching this, I couldn't see how you could possibly do without the lab component. But we don't have labs at John Jay. And so in 2009, what I was doing was using a CD-ROM with these canned experiments. Mm. And um, I would assign them for homework, that we would cover some stuff in class, and then I'd say, okay, now go do your homework. You're going to do this mini-experiment and you're going to answer these questions. That didn't work so well because students didn't always get the instructions. I mean, they were really straightforward to me, but for naive uh, participants and naive experimenters, they didn't always get what they were meant to be doing and they didn't always understand the point of the experiment. So, and then CD-ROMs became pretty much obsolete. Um, and so then I started to flip my class. So I needed students to either read or at least have some sense of understanding before they came to the class so we could do these mini experiments in class. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's what I've been doing in that class. Um, so the... The vodcasts are really just to get students ready to engage with the experiment, to be able to interpret the results in terms of the, um, the theories that they're trying to investigate and so on. I also, I think that's not originally how I started to do it. I think when I first started to do it, and I can't even remember exactly why I started doing it, but I know why I started doing it. It was because I wanted students to read and I didn't think they were reading. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'll just give them like some sound bites about this. What's the average length of a vodcast? Yeah. So they're getting shorter. I'm getting better at it. I would say I should aim for 20 minutes. So if my students are listening to this, they were like, oh, she's never at 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I often, I often do go over 20 minutes. But sometimes I might make two. Um, and that I'm trying to make them 20-minute length. And I'm now going back and editing them or redoing them mm -hmm. because I think when I first started doing them, I'd often do it when I was prepping for class. And so I would record this vodcast, but it was almost like exactly what I might say in class, you know, including 
the little let's do this little exercise and let's do this little demonstration and then and now so they're very complete and they're actually quite useful for me for prepping because mm. I can remember yes. what I what I did last time and what worked and what didn't work um, without taking extensive notes but um, but I don't think that's really what students need it's maybe nice if you miss the class that's the other thing right so if students miss a class there's material that they can look at. There's explanations for them. So I, I liked it from that perspective, that it would maybe get them a little bit more ready for class, and if they miss class, they would have some materials. What surprises you about teaching at this point in your mm-hmm. career? Mm, surprises me. I don't know if it's surprising. I think... It, if you had asked me, I don't know that it surprises me now, but looking back, I think I would have been surprised to know that you can learn so much and still feel that there's so much more to learn, mm. right? So I feel like I've, I'm a fairly experienced teacher now, but I don't feel like I'm, I feel like I'm like on the third step and maybe there's like 20, 30 40 more steps and probably when I'm on the 30th step I might say oh no what was I talking about there's flights more what do you Um, want to get better at next I think what I want to better understand is student time management like how much time our students have to focus on out of class work um, and really be realistic about what they can do in the time that they have because I I probably am guilty. I'm just realizing this. This is like my epiphany this week, um, that I am assigning too much work or I'm assigning, not assigning the right kind of work um, for them to do out of class. For those who might say, oh, but this is college and a college degree would be meaningless unless you assigned X amount of work, do you have a rejoinder to that? Um. I don't think it's the amount of work. I think it's what students can do that's important. So it's the, if we can get there, if we can get the skills there that we want them to have. Um, so I am aware, like, the vodcasts are a way to get students ready for class, but they do detract from reading, for instance. So, And I do want our students to be great readers. So how do I compensate for that? So there are, you know, I haven't figured out all the trade-offs, but I am hoping that we can still get to a stage where we're not dumbing down the curriculum. We're just kind of making it more efficient. small thing that you do in your teaching that you think if others adopted they too could be helping students learn Mm. so I think vodcasts are really great and they are really easy to make um, and students really appreciate them and so of course I survey my students about do you like them 
what do you like about them? Blah blah blah. Right. So and what I would do say, students like about them? so they like that they can go over the material at their own pace, and I think that's particularly relevant for the fact that we have students at many different levels in different classes and different levels of preparedness. Um, maybe some have English as their second language, and those are additional challenges. Right, so you might it just might just take a little bit longer to get the vocabulary, or um, you might just need to hear a certain thing a few more times. Um, and so I think that's what they like about them. I I am still tempted to have the lengthy podcasts available with the a shortened version. So at a minimum, watch this. If you missed class, watch this. Right, so there might be different levels mm. um, that they could engage with, but that I would say is the number one thing that they really like that that they can play it over again. Um, I also often do them for assignments or showing how to use a particular technology, like a database or something like that. So even though we've done it in class and they've had some practice, here's another reminder if you've forgotten or if you weren't in class that day. And is the software to create these readily available online, or is there yeah, a particular so, program you recommend? So so if I'm showing how to do something, um, like using a library database, I use Screencast-O-Matic, which is free. And if I am making a sort of a content vodcast, I tend to use PowerPoint. So it's PowerPoint 2013, you can record narration on each slide, um, and then you export the slide at uh, uh, the the slideshow as a as a mo- as a video. So it's um, an MP4 basically, and then I upload the MP4s to YouTube. So I don't post the uh, the whole video. I'm just posting the link, so student so it doesn't clog up Blackboard basically. Wonderful. They're big files. So. If you imagine one of your students now in 10 years, what would you hope they would remember about your class? Mm. I hope that they would remember that somebody cared about them, um, which I think, again, my students know that I care about them and I want them to succeed, and that maybe they had a transformational moment where they believed in themselves and saw themselves going in a different trajectory, that perhaps they weren't just going to get a bachelor's degree, but maybe they were thinking about graduate school, or they decided that they were going to be a psych major, even though they thought they were going to be um, a criminal justice major, and, and that maybe that those experiences in those classes changed what they thought about themselves as a learner, but also maybe where they wanted to be in the world. That's what I would like. Jill Gross Pfeiffer, (laughs) winner of the Distinguished Teaching Prize, both 2009 and now in 2019. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate to the Provost for Faculty at John Jay College. Welcome to our Distinguished Teaching Series, in which we celebrate the dedication to student-centered innovative teaching practices of our Distinguished Teaching Prize winners. In today's interview, I talk with Eloisa Monteoliva Garcia, Assistant Professor of Translation and Interpreting in the Department of Modern Languages and Literatures. Professor Monteoliva Garcia joined the college less than two years ago in the fall of 2017. I begin the interview by asking her what winning the Distinguished Teaching Prize means to her. That can't be true. Um, it's, it's too soon. It felt too soon. And I know that there, there are many uh, great professors here. So I was very surprised. Uh, but it was a very nice surprise. Um, and I think it is mainly because I, I have such a... Um, such a good experience as a student and I respect my teachers and my professors so much and I for me they are very important people uh, in my life they mean a lot so can you tell us about maybe one of the great mentors or professors in your life and what they were like okay yeah I have I have quite a few I have to say uh, I, I guess I don't remember the bad ones which is a good thing I also had some bad ones uh, but I don't remember them um I could talk about my PhD advisor. She was great. She was great at, uh, as an advisor, uh, as a person. She could read me. And we were both very honest from the beginning in terms of how we wanted to work. But she asked me first. She said, this is what the PhD journey is about. We're going to spend a lot of time working together. And how, how do you think you would like to organize yourself? And for me, that was like, oh, okay, I have a voice here from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I decided I'm going to be just as open as she is. And and it was from that point we worked. Uh, I told her how I would like to work. She said that she thought it was a good idea. And then she was great at... Um, we set goals, and she was great at letting me do things and see things for myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a tendency to make my life complicated. And with a PhD, that was the case. I suddenly found something that I thought, oh, this is amazing, this is interesting, and, or a new theory or something, and I got a bit trapped. And, and I came with this idea of, oh, you know, I would like to explore this and that. And she said, okay, do it, that. And, and um, she let me see for myself whether it worked or not and why before telling me I felt so or... I wanted you to find out why it works or why it doesn't work. Uh, so that's maybe the most recent example. Um, in the materials that you submitted for review for the prize, um, you described your work in teaching translation as having a very strong, what you called, social enabling component. Mm-hmm. And that phrase struck me. What do you mean by it, and how does it translate into your teaching practice? Right. Well, the both activities, translation and interpreting, they are very applied, and they are extremely. What, what I meant by social um, in, social enabling is that you have a translation, uh, so translation uh, written text, and that translation is is a text that is alive, that is going to travel, that is going to be used for something. So it it can be a translation of a book that people are going to read, or it can be something as practical as a birth certificate. 
or as a criminal record certificate or something like that. And that document can be the document or one of the documents that allows someone to do something or that initiates a process. Mm. Uh, and it's going to be part of someone's narrative or someone's proceedings or of someone's um, life. And I think that's very important uh, when we look at interpreting and translation. So interpreting is even more obvious when you interpret for someone is normally... Uh, a situation that is part of their life, whether it's for work or a personal situation or uh, the doctor's office. So there is something happening there and translation or interpretation uh, makes it possible for whatever it is to happen. And in in the classroom, it's always present in different ways, so from the uh, more... Um, theoretical theoretical uh, conversations that we have or conceptualization of what, uh, what what we are learning is not just a linguistic activity, it's something else. And we need to consider all those things when we translate a text. And I think maybe one of the clearest examples is the same, the same text um, will have different translations depending on how it's going to be used and where. So it's from the variety of Spanish that, uh, or, or of English that you need to translate it into, to what is it going to be used for. Uh, um, so taking into account where, when um, it, it is going to be used, when it was produced. You might have a text that, which was produced eight years ago. And there are social issues that you need to consider. And what do they want it for? Who are going to read it? Uh, all those questions are uh, directly related to social businesses or social um, processes. So that's that's we take it in into account, analyzing, discussing, and considering the decisions that we make. And it might make you choose a term instead of the other, or make it add a note to explain something or not, depending on that context. In the materials you submitted, you listed the attributes of your classes that make learning happen. <laughs> and they are structure, clarity, rules, scaffolded activities, respect and openness. Now, I've been interviewing Distinguished Teaching Prize winners for a while now, and I certainly recognize the second half of that list, scaffolded activities, respect and openness, and I think we've discussed it in the podcast before. But I don't think that I've talked too much about structure, clarity, and rules. And I'm really interested in that. How do structure, clarity, and rules in your classes help students learn? I am a firm believer in routines and in rituals and having a structure for activities. And for instance, in an interpreting class, um, there is something like a, like a structure that is common with some changes. Uh, uh, but a structure applies to both um, activities in the classroom. That is, that is a time which will adjust depending on how the class goes. But... I I I, ca- I arrived uh, every class with with a structure in mind, but I, 
it also applies to the to the syllabus and to how I use Blackboard and how I use the other platforms so that students find it easier to navigate. Uh, and that relates to clarity. And this actually comes from students' evaluation in my first semester here. One of the comments or one of the patterns that I noticed was sometimes there is no clarity or maybe too much information or maybe too little information. And I try to improve uh, that aspect. And I try to be um, clearer in what, when, uh, and how things um, have to happen or things should happen. And, and I think I've, I've improved on, on that. So I try to, I have reduced the amount of information that I give for instructions because I try to, I, I tended to be uh, excessively, do this and that and, that and that and so much information that I think it wasn't working. So now I go more to the point and maybe use a better example and I use much more highlighting or um, elements in the formatting that I think are going to help the student understand better what they have to do. Mm-hmm. And the third one was, was clarity structure and rules. And rules. There and, are, and students have described you as strict, but at the same time they say that you're strict, they also say you're great, right? They seem to <laughs> lo- whatever the strictness means or yeah. the rules. What what are the rules? What why do rules matter? There are rules, and they matter a lot. Uh, and uh, I guess this comes from how I was educated at home. So there are there are rules, and I think they are good because rules mean freedom for me. So at home it was there are rules. And they are reasonable. If they're reasonable rules uh, and you see the point and actually they will help me, they will make me free and they will help me to feel better in this classroom. Mm-hmm. So I pay a lot of attention to uh, making students feel safe in class and feel comfortable because I want them to come to class and I want them to, um, to feel that they are learning in every class. But in order for that to happen, I think rules are necessary. So rules start... Uh, with simple things like not using the phones. Uh, if I don't ask you to, you cannot use your computers. And I, I have to remind them, so now what I do, and I credit it in the syllabus, I started this semester, that's that's a rule. Uh, so today, um, when we started the class, I, I said, okay, um, for the following 75 minutes, remember the world will have to forget about you and you will have to forget about the world. You're, you're here, we're here together, we have this time and this is where I want you to be. I want you to be here with me. And, and it works, just saying that and the ex- students accept it. But there are other rules, um, such as uh, some are specifically about language and about communication. And I think they help to not only improve um, linguistic competence, but to also improve how students socialize and how they feel they belong to the class. So, say more about that. Um, the fact that those rules exist, so there is one, for instance, uh, and I also include it in the syllabus, is um, email communication. Mm-hmm. So, when I started, I said, um, you have to communicate with me in Spanish because I thought this is a learning opportunity and they will, they, they will have, they, they, most of them have more, more opportunities to interact in English. So, I thought, let's use these classes to interact uh, in, in Spanish. 
But what I've noticed very quickly was that many students send emails, like blank emails. No subject, no nothing. So it's a blank email without, uh, with just an attachment. And first, I find that extremely rude, <laughs> personally. And I think that it's a social function of writing a few lines. Uh, written and a farewell and closing the email. And it's just the thing that makes that introduction that I consider social interaction nicer. Yeah, and more professional. And more professional. So it's a, it is now part of my syllabus. Every co communication, every email that you send me has to be in Spanish. And it has to include um, a greeting and a subject and just a line. Then please find the touch my blah, my translation or um, or I cannot find this thing on the platform. Thank you. And your name. And um, I noticed at the beginning they felt a bit like, what is she talking about? What, what is wrong about that? And, and they said, like, oh, we don't have five minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah you do. You, you do have 20 seconds or a minute <laughs> to do that. And if you don't, you, you need to find that time because that, that's important time. Um, and I think the message there is first... You can do it, uh, and I and I show and I give them examples in the syllabus. They have examples in Spanish with different types of greetings and different um, structures to do that. Um, but then there is a third rule, uh, which is it has to do with spelling and the written accent. Students uh -huh. have lots of issues with the written accent in Spanish, and they have come to accept or believe that they they that they can't. Use the, the written accent. It's it's a thing that they they, they cannot do, um, and they and they said oh, you know but the way we write and uh, and I know they have seen it in previous courses, uh, most of them. Uh, it is true that they struggle, but I tell them okay well, you're now on a three hundred course, someone on a four hundred course, and this is something that you should know how to do. If you don't know how to do. Uh, you, you really have to learn because there are more important things that we need to pay attention to. And so I have the rule that if I, I allow three accent mark mistakes, after the third one, in anything they submit, I stop marking and I give it back to them. So there is, a, there is some interaction. I have some, so you have more than three. Please revise the rest of the text. You have 48 hours to submit it again. Please have a look at it. And all this comes with handbooks and websites to take and revise because it's something that you need to drill. And if I spend time on that, that I know that they have seen in previous courses and they have come to understand that, well, the professor will just add the ones that are missing. I don't think they're going to learn if I do that every time. Um, so I tell them that if they work as translators or the interpreters, in email communication and, of course, in the translation that they submit, uh, spelling mistakes, as basic as the accent mark, are not uh, a good presentation uh, letter for them. And that they, they have an opportunity to try that here with someone that gives them the second chance and a learning opportunity to do that. And those are rules. And and once students have that initial, oh really? Do you have? Do they have to do that? They pay more attention to that. I this semester I have given two 
back. Just two submissions back from students who had um, more than three accent mark mistakes. And I think the message is you can do it, it's worth doing it, and it's now the time to do it. in the faculty seminar on adapting teaching to a Hispanic-serving institution. Can you share one or two things that you've learned in that seminar? Sure. I learned many things. Uh, I think the two most important things or the two things that that I keep thinking about and trying to do something about is thinking more um, about where our, our students come from whether they are Hispanic or non-Hispanic, uh, paying more attention to um, what they've done first and how that impacts upon the way they learn or maybe the, um, the support that they need to become better learners. I think there is a lot to do in that. Uh, such as? Well, such as some, sometimes... Um, if they have had, for instance, if their education experience have been, has been mostly in, in, in a language or the other, they might feel a bit frustrated or, uh, or a bit uh, anxious about that. And I think trying to identify that as a factor that can affect um, the way they learn is, is one of the things that, that matters. Um, Another aspect, it is actually related to that, uh, is um, acknowledging that most of our students, and it's, it's certainly a reality for the students I interact with, most of them work and most of them have family responsibilities and most of them have lives with lots of responsibilities. And that also affects their, their learning or their student experience. And so... Um, I take that into account in, in the way I um, scaffold activities or in how I prioritize certain types of activities over um, other types of activities in the classroom and which ones I leave for them to do at home. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, uh, as I said, I, I think it's something that is relevant for any student. And for me, what I value most about having taken part in, in the seminar and about being still being, being part of a working group is that I am much more aware of, of certain factors that I think are not unique or specific or of Hispanic students. Some are, uh, so some like being more inclusive in terms of the voices that are represented in the curriculum, in their readings, uh, the realities that come that you bring to the class and how to connect with their own experience, uh, treating issues related to identity in the classroom. Um, but also one is um, using the class um, and the materials and the activities to make them feel that they belong to the campus more. And I think this can be uh, done, for instance, when there is a topic um, for which, for instance, for interpreting, 
for which there is a service here or a professor or a center uh, who, which focuses on that topic or a professor who is an expert on gender issues. I bring that reality into the classroom. So in the midterm interpreting exam, uh, we've been talking about gender issues uh, quite a lot this semester. And I've been using the, the Women's Center for Gender Studies a lot as a reality, bringing the, it as a backdrop in the class while I delivered a speech about gender issues. It was framed here at, at John Jay, and I talked about the center and I talked about the services as an introduction and then moved on to the topic. Or for the midterm exam, the situation that I uh, simulated was there were three researchers, three Hispanic researchers who were working on a project and wanted some advice from an expert here on campus uh, who happened to be an expert on gender issues. And I used a real professor here from campus so that students could read about her and, and I connected the, context that I, the content that I created for the exam with that. And um, together with that, services that are here um, that are available for them, I think if... if we make them part of what we do in the classroom. Probably the students are going to, they're going to mean something more than students, rather than just giving them information about this exists. Um, and there is so much knowledge and so much information that is valuable around them that I think, I always think that would make me feel more part of a place. And I think that the feeling of belonging, of what's going on, of what people do, of what people talk about, and these are all very relevant and very extremely interesting topics. So integrating that in the classroom is something that occurred to me um, after or while I was taking part in the seminar. And I think that is something that applies to or that could apply to any course and to any student. Is there a typical... Eloisa Monteoliva Garcia class period. How do you arrange your class periods? Yes, I think there is. There are always differences, and actually, one of the things that I try to do, as, as I said before, is to try to have some routines and some things that are known to students, because I also think that that makes you feel more comfortable, but also something new, something unexpected, because that also makes you be better prepared, I hope, for instance, for interpreting, anything can happen. <laughs> so you, you need to be uh, ready to, to react. Um, so I try to start, it depends on whether it's an interpreting class or a, or a translation class. But for instance, on an interpreting class, I try to start with some, maybe some feedback, maybe some, some activities that are to start more to start warming up and thinking about uh, what we're going to do. Uh, but then there's always some more technique-focused uh, um, time. And this, this can be, for instance, for note-taking. So we are in interpreting two. We learn the two main interpreting modes, which are consecutive interpreting and simultaneous interpreting. So consecutive, uh, consecutive you listen to the speaker and take notes and then for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and then you deliver your interpretation. In simultaneous interpreting, you are interpreting at the same time as the speaker is, is talking. So those two modes uh, have many similarities, but also huge differences in, in the way 
memory is used in the types of techniques that you have to develop and your cognitive skills. So that first part of the class is, is normally um, focused on that. So memory activity, memory building activities, mm-hmm. or now that we have started um, simultaneous interpreting, we are working on divided attention because we're able to do the two lingui- linguistic activities in two languages at the same time. It requires practice and time. And, and for instance, this morning, I was doing um, shadowing with the students, which is instead of interpreting simultaneously, you are just repeating after the speaker in the same language. And this is just to improve the ability to follow the speaker. Um, And so we did that for four or five minutes and then we interpreted the speech also because it was a bit faster than the ones we did last week. So there is always some added layer of difficulty or, or something new. It can be the topic, it can be more specialized, or it might be faster, um, or it might be a, a different kind of situation that is new for, for students. But that's the first part. And then we move, we move on to actual practice, interpreting practice. So whether it is consecutive or simultaneous, um, I normally give um, students the topic beforehand because I want them to learn how to prepare for an interpreting assignment. And it, it, it might sound obvious, but it's not. Because most students, the first thing they do is, hey, oh, I go and, and try to find terms in a dictionary and build a glossary, like out of the blue. But language doesn't happen without a context. So um, actually how to prepare a topic is one of the things that I might devote time to in the class. If if I didn't give them the topic beforehand, I do that with them. So that's also for me is technique uh, or it it complements the actual interpreting technique. And we spend time saying, okay, let's, let's, we need to learn about whatever topic we're going to interpret uh, about today. uh, And by, but it is by doing that in both languages how we then find out which terms are more um, frequent, which terminology, which acronyms, institutions, um, and so on and so forth. We need to know and we need to learn and which ones we should, we should have um, at hand while we are interpreting we, we, because we might need to have a look at them. Uh, so that last part of the class is practice. Uh, and it's in class. And something that I'm doing more um, this semester is there's some changes that I've made from uh, the last previous semester to this one. Uh, and this was based on uh, also students' suggestions. Uh, students who finished the internship uh, at the court system and they were they were observing interpreters and they were interpreting a little bit and. And they mentioned, I asked them, is there something that you would like, uh, that you think now that you've been doing the internship and you've completed the courses, is there something that you think you you would change from classes? And they said, they said well, there is, there is one thing, which is um, interpreting more in front of the class. So they do a lot of interpreting on their computers and they record themselves. And because you want all of them to interpret a lot and to practice a lot. But they said, 
actually when you have to come out to the consecutive uh, and you have to be in, in front of people doing it, uh, I think if, if we did it more in class, it would be helpful. So I sacrificed some time to other things um, some days to actually um, ask some of the students to come and do it in front of their, their peers. And that's, that's mostly an interpreting class. A translation class, um, in a translation class, I I'm really feel like a moderator. I am. I become. I'm on the side or really at the back of the classroom physically, and we we discuss translations. And this method is working. I'm, I'm very happy with this. With some changes that I that I made, so uh, there are translation assignments that students have to work on, and they are scaffolded based on the different types of texts and topics and progressively moving towards more administrative official documents because this course goes before legal translation. So uh, these translation assignments, I I, uh, I, I, I was going to say I assign or I select two students, but I ask them to volunteer and there are always two who volunteer. So two people have to... Um, defend or present their translation in front of the class. But the way I used to do it last year and didn't work very well was that I, I asked them to present it and then the others to comment. And I thought, I have to change this. I have to change this. So the difference is that they're defending it so that there's something at stake for them? No. The difference is um, everyone has to translate the text. Everyone. Uh, but two people will be in front of the class. And... What I do now is that I bring the, those two people have to send me the translation one day before the class, and then I arrive in the classroom and I and students are um, working in pairs and I give each pair um, a copy of either both translations to that their peers are going to defend, or one of them, or both translations and the original text so that they can see everything. And I give each pair a different focus. And I give them 10 minutes to analyze only that thing that I've given them. I know that they're going to see many more things, but it is focused. So a pair can have, find three things that you, have, that you think are great solutions. Uh, and that's always included, because otherwise it's very easy to go to the negative right. uh, thing. So that's always included. Three things that you think are right or you, you, or you particularly liked. Uh, or um, to another group, um, check what happens with sense uh, and, and with meaning transfer. Another group might be punctuation. So each pair has a different focus. And, and then I sit at the back of the classroom, the two people who are defending are out, and actually they end up being the ones who speak less in the end. Sure. Because what I do, I moderate. So I, I, I start asking, okay, so which pair, I, I, I hand, the, hand the, the assignments out without knowing who has what. And so I ask, who, who had the assignment of finding out three great things? And so they speak and they say, why? Uh, but then others react naturally and uh -huh. say, oh, I also like this thing. And I, and, and, and I encourage that to happen. And, and then the two people who are presenting can reply or not, or I ask them to explain, oh, yeah, I also like that. Why did you do that? Or how did you do that? Uh, 
And so the whole class, we are analyzing those two translations and the students who are part of the audience are really engaged because they are analyzing those translations, but also shedding, oh, what I did for that, I instead of that, yeah. or they ask, right. I have this, is this also a good solution? Yes, no, why? Yeah. And we and it's all about decision making. And yeah. Well, it sounds like the model of the flipped classroom. Yes. Right, that all the work happens outside, and then they come in and they're ready to really just sort of refine, comment, and analyze the quality of the work they did, which makes sense for why it's so successful for them, because they're already engaged. Yes. And they're ready to take it to the next level. Yeah, and and they also, I think, um, they've all of them are, are shedding doubts, but for me, there is something very important, which is <sighs> this decision-making process. I think translation and interpreting are two very demanding activities which are mostly about making decisions mm -hmm. and what I want is that students will be able I want to think that they will be able to make decisions considering what they have as a text and the assignment and I want them to be able to to apply all that thinking process that happens in class when they are translating at home rather than just going to the dictionary which is their first Uh, reaction. What do you want to get better at in your teaching? Uh, <laughs> there are many things I want to get better at. Um, I want to get better at maybe not being so creative or not wanting to react to things that I, that I observe. Um, I think I, um, I'm, I'm a good observer and I um, maybe the reason why students feel comfortable in class because they, they say it is I think I, I think I notice what's going on and, and I am able to ask in a way that works for them and to to make them feel that they're they're all participating and to encourage those who are not participating so much and, and to moderate in a lot. But that ability to observe things also makes me want to, oh, I observed this thing. Uh, maybe I should, oh, I have, an, I, I have an idea now. I'm going to create this great thing to address this issue that I observed in class. And and my first reaction is, yes, I'm, gonna, I'm going to create this new assignment and generate Uh, a lot of new work for me, a lot of new grading load for me. And sometimes I, I realize afterwards, hang on a second, was, was, was that the right thing to do, to react so quickly? Why don't I wait a little bit and, and observe a little bit longer and try to analyze this with more information and think of a better way of addressing it or whether it should be addressed at all now or not, or maybe later. So I think being able to um, adjust is a good thing. And I, and, I, and I have learned to create the syllabus in such a way that there is a structure that keeps me on track, keeps me on track, but which also gives me latitude mm -hmm. to adjust to that particular group of people that I am working with in that group, in the class, which is going to be different from the one the previous year. Um, but 
also to control myself from being far too creative and far too, yeah, producing new things. In the spirit of making small adjustments to our teaching that can positively affect student learning, um, is there one small thing that you do in your teaching that you think others, if they adapted it, could help their students to learn? Huh. Good question. Um, small thing, right? <laughs> Aspirationally. <laughs> well, I think a small thing, a very small thing, that is very basic, um, but it's, it's giving students, sending the message, not only by saying it, but also through your actions, through my actions, that I am there. And what I mean by that is uh, if I ask students to spend that hour or that, that those 75 minutes engaged in the classroom uh, doing whatever we're doing, I have to be just as engaged or more. And this means that I, I want to learn their names, I want to give them a voice, and I want to make them feel that they matter because they matter. Uh, and they how, matter a how lot. How do you make them feel that they matter? Well, I think it's something as basic as treating them with respect as I would treat anyone in general. Um, and asking them, checking, checking with them, for instance, how they felt after an activity. And making sure that it's not it is not always the same group of people who answer. Also inviting others to do it without forcing them to do it. But also doing little things that I found that mattered a lot. Uh, maybe this is something very small. But uh, I, I when I see information that I think, oh, this is really interesting for this for the class or for the students. So. Uh, last year, I tended to. Oh, I just sent an email, uh, and and one of the students who who is very very honest about about teaching, uh, and and I love it. And he said, "I love your classes, but you send so many emails." And I thought, "Oh my god, this is uh, email fatigue." And it's rare, but it's sometimes too much information. And I thought, "Okay," but I want to I, I want to make them feel that they matter and that I thought. I saw something that I thought this is interesting uh, and I want to share it with them. So what I do now uh, to try to channel that, I, I send them what I call uh, Friday presents. Oh, so, a Friday present. A Friday. So this is an email, like a digest version of your yes. former emails. Yeah, so for every course, every Friday, uh, there is a Friday present. And oh. this is, it might be, are a very interesting article that is related to something in the class or a podcast or, for instance, last week it was information about the uh, Colombian Film Festival in New York City. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So that goes out in that Friday email. And um, or it might be a nice short story that I read. So I want to encourage them to read a lot. So Friday presents are most of the times, uh, things that uh, encourage them to read. And and I didn't know how much they were going to read it or not, 
and they do because they comment on it and that's very nice and I think I think those things I know it's not uh, maybe it's not a technique or a strategy or anything pedagogical but I do think it's it's treating them like humans with intellectual yes. and artistic and cultural interests. Yes, yes, and make them making them feel you belong to this world now, and and sharing all that with them. And yeah, so maybe the Friday present, and <laughs> it's it's a small thing, and but it's it's I think it's a nice thing, and I think students uh, value it and appreciate it. Eloisa Monteoliva Garcia, winner of the Distinguished Teaching Prize 2019. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate to the Provost for Faculty at John Jay College. Welcome to our Distinguished Teaching Series, in which we celebrate the dedication to student-centered, innovative teaching practices of our Distinguished Teaching Prize winners. In today's interview, I talk with Matthew Perry, Associate Professor of History. I begin the interview by asking him what winning the Distinguished Teaching Prize means to him. of working with uh, a number of really great teachers, instructors here at John Jay, and um, it feels nice, I guess. I, I, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to be recognized for something that I value. One of the techniques you use in the classroom is having students write informal one-minute papers at the end of class periods. What are one-minute papers, and why do you use them? Uh, so this is a, a great technique that I use sometimes. Basically, at the end of class, I'll ask students to pull out a piece of paper uh, and write down a few sentences, maybe a paragraph. You know, I might ask them, well, what did you learn today in class? Or what was the most important point made in the reading for today? Uh, and then just have them write it down quickly before they leave and then turn it in. And it's a way for me to... Uh, both reinforce with the students what they learned, the act of kind of recalling and writing it down kind of helps them center their thoughts, and then I can kind of check in and see how students, you know, how well they're, they're um, I guess, uh, understanding the material. From student comments and the materials you submitted, it's clear that group work is central to your pedagogy, and I noticed that this year you are participating in the Teaching and Learning Center faculty seminar on collaborative learning. Can you share one or two things that you've picked up about collaborative learning over either the seminar or your many years of doing group work that you think might help others? I think some of us struggle with group work. Um, well, I think the, the, the challenge for me with group work is that it is inefficient, that it is a slower process to get to where you want to end up. Mm-hmm. And you have to be okay with that. And I think it's something for myself that I, I'm always kind of wrestling with it. 
because there is there is kind of a just an inefficiency built in as students uh, not only are trying to kind of negotiate with material but negotiate with one another and how they're working together. But that being said, I think it's it's valuable uh, because it can produce I guess better learning. That I think that students can uh, in the end get more out of the process. Um, in part because it's it's not always an easy process to uh, to go through. The other thing I found is that students themselves really don't like the idea of group work at first. Um, I found that right? right. Students often feel like they're wasting their time in groups, or else the idea that they feel like they have to carry the load, um, that you know other students aren't really pulling a fair share, or something like that. That never goes away for some students, especially if the group doesn't work out as 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 well as it should but I do find that uh, students generally enjoy it more than they think they're going to okay so what do you put in place to try to minimize the inefficiency of it or you know the, the uneven quality of the individual participants etc I should say most of the time when I use group work um, it's used more informally as opposed to doing a formal assignment that's going to be graded. And in some ways, I think that makes it easier for many students because they feel that um, their grade doesn't rest as heavy on it. And so that they're more inclined to experiment or try something new or um, okay if things don't work out at the end of the day. And so some ways that I try to make them as productive as possible, I guess, is, is trying to kind of craft an assignment that is doable with a set period of time with a number of students working on it, uh, and then try to give them guidance, uh, especially in terms of focus questions, so questions that they're, that they're supposed to answer, or in a few cases... Uh, I don't do this as, as much as some of my colleagues do, but but having students assigned to particular roles, um, so if they have a job, uh, you know that one person is responsible for collecting this type of information, one student is going to be responsible for presenting the information to the class, and so when they have a particular kind of responsibility, kind of in mind, as opposed to uh, just needing to kind of do everything, that that helps them to. I guess, get something valuable out of the experience. So your area of scholarly, scholarly research is ancient Roman slavery and citizenship. Mm -hmm. How do you make that relevant for students who might see that as irrelevant to their learning and their lives? Well, that's, I mean, that's a that's a fair question, um, and I think it's it's not just about my own area of research, but I mean, you could even say that this is uh, about kind of ancient history in general. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the way that I explain it to my students, and um, and it's something I believe as well too, is that um, first and foremost, it helps us to explain the the, the state of the modern world. Um, so especially in, in addition to the slavery and citizenship, for example, one of my uh, important kind of research fields is looking at how gender intersects, intersects with 
uh, these two categories. And you know, if talking about you know something related to gender and social status in the ancient world, looking at how or telling students and, and looking at how many of the beliefs or assumptions that develop in the ancient world continue to shape contemporary society. And then at the same time, telling them or, or working with them to see how the ancient world differs from the contemporary world and understanding kind of the flexibility of certain ideas such as, well, there was a different understanding of what it meant to be in a family at this point in time and understanding that that uh, that some of these concepts or, or institutions that we kind of accept as normal uh, are, again, the product of our society, product of historical changes, uh, which also means that they can change in the future as well, too. Matt, you've been teaching at John Jay for more than 10 years. What are you most proud of? Really, I think the—I don't know if this is quite what you're asking. I mean, the, the thing that I'm most proud of is is seeing students do something successful, right? Uh, especially students that I've been working with. And so the, the, the example that pops into my mind first is that in the history department, uh, we have uh, students who, in the process of writing their senior theses, uh, give uh, an oral presentation. And seeing students, you know, who are able to um, really, you know, produce an interesting project and an interesting presentation, even though that you know that they've been struggling with it over time, is, is something that's really kind of wonderful to see. And I think that's the time, you know, in, in some of these cases, I might be working with a student or in other cases, it might just be indirectly involved that the student was in my class at one point during their, their academic career or something. But, but seeing the growth that, that the students have over the course of the semester and, and over the course of their careers is, is the thing that I'm, I guess, happiest to see. And I'm, I'm proud that when I have the opportunity to play a small part in that. is trying to get more students involved in the kind of in, in, in the learning process. Um, something that I, I really value uh, are, are you know, trying to help students become active learners. And that's a really important part of my pedagogy. And you see it succeeding in, in some cases, which is really wonderful to see. And there's still uh, a lot of students that, for whatever reason, can't get them involved, either can't get them to buy in, or there's other factors at play, and I think that I can do a better job trying to get more students um, participating in class, participating in the learning environment, succeeding in the course assignments. One of the things that you do in your first year courses is you provide students with a set of self-reflective questions. They get to involve their whole selves. They can include their feelings about course materials, campus features, and answers. I was really excited and interested to see that there. Um, I've read the literature that says self-reflection is really important for student learning. And I'm just going to share my gender bias. I was happy to see it 
on a male professor's syllabus um, because I feel sometimes when I attempt these kinds of questions, I am looked at as a female professor asking these touchy-feely questions, even though I know it's good pedagogy. I'm not going to ask you a question about the gender, but I want to ask, I mean, I'm just sort of putting that out there, um, unless you want to address it. But why do you do it, and what are your experiences with it? What do you do with the answers, et cetera? So that's that's a, it's an interesting question, um, especially because as a historian, I'm actually very wary of self-reflection papers. Mm. And again, recognizing that they have an important role in, in, uh, in pedagogy, one of the things that um, we as kind of history instructors strive to do is to remove students... Uh, to to get students from thinking about their own personal responses and thinking about um, the responses of historical actors. So, for example, you know, if we're talking about something related to, to ancient slavery, you know, students will want to explain how they feel about it, mm-hmm. um, why they think that this practice might be wrong, um, which again is a, is a completely valid discussion to have. But part of my job as a as a history instructor is looking at well the voices of the historical actors. So how do you know th- how does this Roman author justify or explain the process, or why do th- why don't they even feel the need to justify the process, or how can they have a different understanding of what is justice, you know, than you might? So I, I went into it again as something that I felt you know wary about incorporating in history classes and. Um, the reason I include it in, in the first year seminar classes is is primarily because that's it was an expected part of the class itself, right? That um, that those running the first year program really wanted this reflective element uh, to be part of the student's experience, and I have to say, I'm still wary about it as a historian, <laughs> but as an instructor teaching a first year seminar. I, I really I enjoy it and think that it's valuable. So I have a little bit of, of kind of uh, of an internal tension going on here. Um, but the the students themselves, one, uh, it's nice because they're they're more excited uh, to write these. I found than their um, uh, uh, say writing about some long dead historical you know <laughs> actor because they can you know share their thoughts about something that they feel passionately about or that they feel um, interested in or something like that. Um, and so what I do with them, not a lot in the sense of, like, they're, they're not graded. They don't factor into students' grades. Um, I use them myself to get to know the students, to try to get a sense of what students uh, are interested in. And maybe I can, you know, kind of incorporate certain elements or certain themes into the class. Um, I guess it's a way of also seeing if students have questions about their experiences at John Jay um, that I might talk to them about or that we have a, um, a peer advisor working with us in the first year seminar classes that I might pass along to them and say, okay, well, you, know, you might want to you know, share this information about student organizations or something like that if you're, if you're meeting with a student. small adjustments to teaching that can positively affect student learning. 
is there some little thing that you do that you think if others adopted, um, they too could have a positive effect on student learning? So if I was to say, you know, something little that I think is really important is really to have some variety in the classroom. And by that I mean try to shift activities um, over the course of the class. That uh, So something that I try to do is, you know, there might be uh, a little bit of lecture, might have the students then transition and do some small group work, do a little bit more lecture, question and answer session. But uh, switching gears, switching to another activity, I think can help students uh, stay plugged in. It kind of keeps, uh, it keeps the attention going, especially uh, shifting from a, a more passive uh, experience, like listening to me talk for a few minutes, to something active where they're talking with their neighbor or writing something down. And I think, in my, my opinion, that that's something that is, is the most valuable thing that instructors can do, is just do something different you know, over the course of a class. Matthew Perry, winner of the John Jay Distinguished Teaching Prize 2019. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much.